Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your day again today. I'm very interested in knowing from whence you're listening out there, because when I look at the statistics, I see that we've been listened to, and last time I checked a couple of weeks ago, it was 45 different countries around the globe, and not all 50 states. I think it was 47. The Dakotas need to get on board. They haven't uh, checked us out yet. Uh, the, the the buffalo and the cattle haven't uh, found themselves online yet to uh, to check out the awesome healthcare information that we put out here on the show. But uh, lots of folks are paying attention, and, and that's because we're putting out some information that is useful to both our colleagues in the uh, clinical practice side of things. Physicians and healthcare experts can learn a lot from the folks that come on our show, as well as uh, patients out there in the community who either themselves or their loved ones are dealing with some issues that uh, actually get to get some insight excellent information straight from the the physician experts themselves. So uh, that brings me to our guest today. I've got Frank Martin from the Medical Consultants Group. He's joined us in the past uh, on the show, and he's one of the experts that links up with uh, our colleagues in the community uh, to help them manage their practice in a more efficient fashion, help them do things like improve the patient engagement with their practice, and actually we'll be talking a little bit about that today and how uh, not only can we engage our patients uh, on a greater level, but we can show that we're doing so. So, Frank, thanks for taking some time out of your busy day to stop by the studio and uh, share some information that will hopefully help some of our uh, medical partners out there. Very much appreciate you giving me the time, and I'm glad to be here. Well, so take me through the backstory for Frank Martin, in case somebody hasn't uh, heard your story in the past. Um, How'd you get to where you are right now? And then we'll kind of talk a little bit about uh, the medical consulting group and, and then kind of go forward from there in terms of some of the solutions that, that you can work with a physician practice on to uh, either achieve greater efficiency or greater patient satisfaction and outcomes. Um, I've spent the majority of my career working in healthcare. I started off in, in, in surgery um, with disposable surgical drapes, went to power surgical instruments, rehab equipment, and finally ended up in healthcare IT. Um, when I left the corporate world, I was the president of a small EMR company uh, and uh, then went off on my own after I sold the company to uh, uh, another investor. Uh, and now I've pretty much dedicated my consulting practice to helping doctors' offices become better businesses. I think the real challenge for independent physicians is learning how to succeed as a business. I'm a firm believer in the fact that you can't do good until you've done well. I think that that is true, and I think it's interesting that you were in the EMR space before where you are now. Um, in my opinion, that is going to be one of the things that ultimately kind of changes the landscape pretty heavily. I think in in the early years of the electronic medical record, I think that most of us thought about them from a perspective of um, a little bit more efficient record keeping. Um, hopefully, if I'm operating on a uh, an application that is relatively intuitive, then I can actually see a few more patients per day uh, and still feel as though I did the same work I did before I started using my new application. Um, but where it's going, um, 
particularly with some of the changes in the law that I actually agree with as it relates to health care, um, deals with the, the data and, and deals with electronic medical records. What is it? Uh, is it 16, 2016, I believe it is, that everybody has to be on electronic medical records? And from what I understand, one of our uh, guests on a show uh, a few weeks ago was talking about the fact that we're still at only around 85% adoption. So there's a lot of work for, for those folks out there to uh, get converted over from paper to electronic medical records. Um, I'm certainly interested, in, if we have time, to, to kind of get your thoughts on that side of things. How valuable is it? How should... Uh, uh, folks look at it if they're on a what's called a legacy system, for example, versus some of the modern cloud-type architecture that they offer today. Uh, so if we care to get into that, uh, I'd be happy to get your input. But going back a little bit, um, one of the things that we talked about before we jumped on the air today was patient engagement. And I know that as it relates to the Affordable Care Act, for example, one of the things that we as providers, whether we're a hospital or a physician's office, we have to be thinking about now is patient satisfaction, patient outcomes, um, and it's kind of kind of developing into a big deal in terms of how we engage a patient on a number of levels. One, do we give them something to do with themselves? Because inevitably, we're going to wait at some point in, in time, whether I'm sitting waiting for my diagnostic study in the hospital or in a doctor's office, that's a big dissatisfier, so my scores will fall. Uh, but the other side of that is it's a great opportunity to educate the patient as it relates to population health management type uh, things where I'm giving them useful, helpful information that might make them a little bit more healthy when they come back. So from your perspective, when you sit down with a practice how do you go about you know, talking to them about patient engagement? What does it mean for you, and what should it mean for a practice? There are some statistics just that you can use to judge the quality and quantity of patient engagement um, on a national level. Less than 25% of patients who have, the, who have access to patient portals use them on a consistent basis. Um, while the information is there, kind of it, it, it's a little more difficult. It's easy for patients to erase emails. The doctor doesn't have any proof that the patient got the email, that the patient read the email. And uh, less than 25% of people avail themselves of the services available through patient portals, which, as you well know, have been mandated. Every practice has to have a portal. Every practice has to communicate with a given percentage of the patients they see electronically within, I think it's two days after the patient visit. So what counts as a portal? If I have a website, um, I can go on as a patient. I have a unique identifier that identifies me as a patient. Then do you find that in most times it's just basically allowing me to submit some forms or fill them out electronically or to download a form and or, or what kind of information do I typically need to be able to see there as a patient? You can get abnormal results labs. Like if the doctor says, hey, you know, your labs were not good. You need to call me or come back to the office. You can certainly fill out forms. You can make a appointments. You can make payments. There are patient payment portals that are specific to payments. Patients can request appointments. You don't, it's not necessarily a wise idea to give the patient access to the practice management appointment system because somebody has to adjudicate two people asking for the same appointment time. So that technology isn't quite all the way there yet. But um, those are some of the various ways you can communicate with patients via the portal. And so when we're talking patient engagement here based on what we're saying the thrust of where we're going. It sounds like 
we're talking about some of the electronic means that we can get somebody to touch us, interact with us. Is that what you're saying, or is it bigger than that? I think it's bigger than that. Um, as it used to be that uh, that patients were kind of disconnected from the economic side of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Now with higher deductibles, they're getting pretty connected. They've got skin in the game. Right. Okay. And and, and all of a sudden, uh, preventive care in understanding how, as a patient, I may be able to decrease my cost of health care, especially if I've got a family, is kind of an important thing. And in my mind, it brings up the uh, whole point of um, anticipatory guidance. And I think your point about what you can have in waiting rooms and what you can have in exam rooms, if the patient's active and in their 30s, there's a certain number of things that you might be able to anticipate and provide guidance for. In a, in a larger picture, not necessarily about the um, chain of events regarding a specific diagnosis, but just in regards to how you can take care of yourself and do a good job. And at different decades, there are different things you can use to give patients anticipatory guidance. It's a um, concept that's used in pediatrics heavily. The pediatrician comes in and says, okay, the kid's six months old. Over the next 18 months or 12 months, you can expect to see the following things. Okay. Now, the time horizon certainly changes with adults. But the idea of anticipatory guidance and event management is probably important there. And event management is something that you could use a patient portal for to notify the patient that it's probably time for you to come in and get a check on this. But patient education, um, certainly from a diagnostically specific standpoint, makes sense. But just in terms of general, I don't know that magazines are everything you should feel good about. As it relates to preventive care, it would seem that, as you talked about earlier, um, we have a greater amount of skin in the game, dramatically more so for many, many people now, um, including those who didn't have insurance before. They have insurance now, but oh, by the way, they actually have a pretty sizable commitment should they go and choose to use their newfound insurance. So it's not nirvana that's all free healthcare. Um, And so as it relates to preventive care, you talked about the fact that preventive care is clearly, in the long run, far more affordable, far more um, judicious in relation to the use of our healthcare system, our overall healthcare dollars. But that's a tough sell, I would think, um, in the, in the family where I'm living check to check, that kind of thing. Do you find that? I'll put off the preventive, roll the dice that the bad thing that I'm hopefully preventing doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen until I can afford it. Do you see what I'm saying in terms of how do we how do we get our folks to understand that do what you can to afford the preventive and don't roll the dice on the disaster, <laughs> especially if you're at risk? That's got to be a tough piece of education, but it's got to be done. That's a great question. Um, I think addressing it up front is a great way to do it, is to sit down and say, okay, look, you got a $5,000 deductible. Mm-hmm. Here's your medical history. Here are the odds and the chances. So let's just say that we're going to have to deal with, prob- there's a possibility, strong enough to consider, sure. that we're going to have to deal with a $2,500 expense. What's the best way to handle that? Well, there are systems now that enable doctor's offices to keep a credit card on file and set up a payment program for the patient so the patient can know, okay, worst case, okay, if this expense hits, I can handle it with my credit card and I can set up a budget plan where I'm making a payment of X number of dollars a month. But I think the, the critical interplay is between the clinician and the patient regarding the finances and the specifics of the patient's condition. 
I mean, if you've got an 85-year-old guy with two bad hips and a very sedentary lifestyle, uh, the chances are he's going to burn through any deductible he might have at that age. Probably a bad example, but you get the picture. Mm-hmm. Frank Martin from the Medical Consultants Group is sharing some information about us. We're talking a little bit about electronic medical record and, and at the moment kind of covering patient engagement as a function of that so that we can have some measure of influence uh, over their health choices, uh, help them actually be able to kind of moderate their uh, level of health from a distance, so to speak. It's a requirement, as Frank was saying, uh, from a regulatory perspective that uh, I guess you have to have an, a website if you're going to have a portal. So that's a new requirement or relatively new. Um, so if, if you're listening today and your practice doesn't have a website and it doesn't have a portal, we've got to fix that. And clearly we have about a year or so, maybe less now, to get electronic medical record in place. Um, do you find some strategies that uh, have worked with regards to bringing people in and, and using that type of portal or, or various tools, whether it's email, texting, the different things that they can do now electronically to transmit and receive information from patients? Have you seen some strategies that have helped practices be better able to engage their patients that are, that we should should be able to share? Yeah. Um, actually addressing the financial side of things in a way that gives patients options is an increase, shows an increase in patient satisfaction because it takes that fear off the table. Okay, how much is this going to cost? How am I going to pay for it? All right, l- let's get this settled. There are systems now that will allow the um, practice to query the insurance company on the specifics of today's encounter, um, get a prediction, an accurate prediction of how much the patient will owe over and above their copay right there on the spot. If the practice can collect the money on the spot, the probability that the patient will pay the bill goes up significantly versus if you let the patient go home. And can you talk about that? I mean, how do you advise your clients on how to handle that interaction because that's it's it's a dicey interaction because one we our goal it's our business to provide health care but our goal is to get you better as our customer to have a positive outcome for you um and so on one on one side really that's what we want to focus on is you have a need a health need and you're in the right place because our providers here, our nurse practitioners and physicians are the best, and we can do what we need to for you. Oh, by the way, how do you want to handle that $125 deductible and uh, your out-of-pocket expense is up to $2,500? I see you've spent 400 of that, so there's going to be several. How do, you, how do you advise your clients on how to handle that kind of conversation? Who should handle it? Uh, physician, I would hope not, but I mean, who should handle that in in your best estimation as a consultant working with physician practice and, you know, how to to best conduct the conversation? It's wonderful if you can have a patient ombudsman, for lack of a better term, or a patient representative. Like a financial, the person that deals with that side of things? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Because again, you're going to help the patient. You're going to take clinical advice from the the physician. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the physician is going to help the uh, patient representative understand the probability that greater expenses will occur. And depending on that probability, now you have to engage with the patient in a conversation about how those might be handled. But I also think from a, if the role of the physician changes, we're kind of 
moving from a break-fix model, okay? I, I don't see the doctor unless I need to be fixed, mm-hmm. right? We're moving from a break-fix model to a preventive maintenance model. And I think that changes the role or, or can change the role of a clinician into one of an advisor slash consultant from a subject matter expert. Or, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, somebody that works on the patient just gets them better. Mm-hmm. It's an overall health. And, and I think patient-centered medical homes, accountable care organizations are fueling that trend and making it easier for physicians to slip into that role. And anytime you can make the patient feel as if you have their best interests at heart, which I think doctors do, um, by and large, then I think that's clearly going to benefit patient satisfaction. Now, before we went on the air, you talked a little bit about some of the options there. May, from what I could gather, there are some potential options out there with regards to um, how the patient can pay. You talked about the, the credit card piece and that kind of thing. So can you talk about that side of things? Because I'm sure not all of the practices out there are, are aware of the variety of options that may exist for helping that patient prevent the patient's obligation from that being the reason why they don't seek treatment. You know what I'm saying? Sure. There are some practices that collect $100 up front and withhold that depending on what the insurance company will pay. You don't know until you submit the bill. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a system that allows you to predict what the patient will over and above their copay, then you're kind of guessing. So you take $100 that creates a buffer zone. Okay, you send the explanation. Of, you send the bill off to the insurance company. You get an explanation of benefits back. You understand if the patient has paid too much, then you send the patient a check. One of the difficulties with that, um, the primary way that practices are embezzled, is um, by people within the practice taking checks that were meant to go to patients and using them for some other purpose. I see. So if you can get everything on an electronic basis where I don't have to send the patient a check, all I have to do is credit their credit card or debit their credit card again if the balance is higher, then that kind of eliminates that potential threat. But I personally really like the ability to predict what the patient will owe and to be able to discuss it right on the spot. Now, from what I was understanding, and and we were kind of getting ready for the show while we were chatting, so a little foggy on the the details, but you were saying that there were some elements as it relates to when I use a credit card as a patient to pay for my bill, that there's some differences there, at least in some form or fashion, as it relates to the, I guess, the collection side of that obligation. Is, hmm. is, that, is, that, is that true or no? That is true. Um, I, I don't know that uh, I, I, it's probably possible with all of the systems for the patient to set a specific amount of money that they would like debited or charged to their credit card on a monthly basis. That can vary. Some That's going to be a practice policy thing. We have a minimum payment of $50 a month, $75 a month, whatever. But as a provider, you actually have some measure of ability to say, okay, your, your obligation is this, but what works? Absolutely. A- absolutely. And if you're doing that, then I assume that puts you in line with the regulations that say you can't just say, oh, don't worry about the copay. Yes. You have to be HIPAA compliant. You also have to be PIC compliant with that kind of a system. So there are rules and regs that affect um, or that dictate to you what kind of system you have to use. But assuming you're compliant with those systems, the most important thing is to give the patient the ability to set their own parameters for when they make the payments, how they make the payments, and to notify the patient that the the payment has been made or is about to be made. Mm -hmm. 
And as it relates to our conversation about patient engagement, do you see across your, you know, through feedback from your, from your clients out there that um, on the younger end of the scale, engagement is much higher on the older end of the scale, less users of technology like smartphones and laptops and computers and things like that. The engagement is a little bit more difficult to uh, manage or, or manage upward, I guess, if you will, since that's obviously our goal. Is that, is that a kind of a common thing? I would think it, that uh, among the elderly population that trying to get engagement, particularly through portals and different things like that, that we have at our disposal is difficult. Uh, generally speaking, okay, um, there's absolute truth in what you just said. One of the problems is the communication methods employed by millennials is that's kind of a shifting environment. Sure. Okay. Email, text, Instagram, there's all kinds of ways that younger people use to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Whether or not those that practice can keep up with the changes may be a little problem. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, in that group, I'm sure that there's almost a demand from from them. They want to have access to this information. I want to be able to log in and see what my cholesterol and my blood pressure was last time. It should be right there for me and just boop, log in and see it. Yeah, and there's more and more wearables that are coming out. You know, So there are things that you can use to determine good quality clinical data based on uh, patients' real-life conditions. But one of the things that needs to be taken into consideration is those vehicles don't necessarily give a doctor the ability to prove that the patient got the message or that the patient read the message. So if I send you a text, for example, it may have gone on into space or... You you may never have seen it. If I sent an email, did it actually get gobbled up by a spam filter, for example, or something like that? Or maybe I missed, made a typo, and it didn't bounce back to me. It just went nowhere. Yeah, or the patient casually looked at it without necessarily understanding the implications. I see. Gotcha. Okay. Um, it, 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 phone systems have proven to, to be a little bit more effective in getting to a higher percentage of populations. Because they're interactive now. You can actually have the phone system ask a question, you key in a response. In this particular case, it has to be HIPAA compliant, right? Because you're dealing with protected health information. Sure. So you have to have a specific voice mailbox for the patient, and the patient has to have a specific login. If you meet those two criteria, if the patient has their own mailbox and the patient has their own login, then that's considered to be HIPAA compliant. I see. When the patient retrieves the message, if the doctor leaves a message that's two minutes and 34 seconds long, the system displays how long the patient listened. So if the patient listened all two minutes and 34 seconds, then you pretty well as a physician have proof that the message was not only sent but received. So what do you do as a physician if you notice that we've got this cool feature, which I think it is a cool feature, that uh, you move the portal off of the Internet and onto a telephonic model. That would probably get a greater level of engagement with the older population, for example. They can dial a phone. Um, But if you notice in your, I would assume that there's some data and some monitoring or reporting that comes with that kind of capacity that you're saying that the system will tell me that uh, I sent an SMS or a voice message to CW about his results or about something relating to his care, and he only listened to 15 seconds out of 234. Um, How do you manage that? What do you do to address that? Do you say, uh, at the end of this, we'll give you the weather report? like the news does. Um, (laughs) Some patients are going to be more compliant than others. That's kind of a given. Right. right? The one thing you can do is identify the patients who historically do not listen to the entirety of the message. 
Right. You also want to be able to blend um, your website and the patient portal with the phone system. So at the very least, you can say, look, just go check the data on the, on the patient portal. So, so, so if I'm sitting in a practice that I don't have a I don't have a phone system that lets my patients call in and interact with me, lets me leave them voicemails or send them text messages and things like that, and my portal's not very robust on my website, it sounds like I've got some costs coming. Uh, how, I mean, how do you make that make sense for me? Obviously, the government's kind of like you're going to do this, so I guess we got to do it. But I mean, how do you prepare that business? Because it is a business, a business owner, and not just a physician. How do you prepare that business for that and and help them make sense of of that spend? Because there's got to be on you know any business spend. There's got to be some sort of ROI in it, whether it's reduced risk, whether it's uh, increased revenue, whatever it may be that solution solves. How does, how does that spend make sense for them other than just pure government compliance? If we take the cost of communication, um, given, the, given that phones are more effective because they reach a broader percentage of the patient base, then the question is who makes the calls? If the system itself makes the calls and uses pre-recorded messages, then a practice employee does not have to. So you can send messages to a lot more patients for a lot less cost in terms of return on investment. Keeping patients on protocol not only increases revenue for the practice because you're going to see patients more frequently, maybe for less costly visits, but you're going to see patients more frequently, but it also enables the practice to collect bonuses on pay for performance. It also allows them to get a lower malpractice insurance rate because if a patient's on protocol and you can prove that they have gotten all the messages that you sent and you did everything you're supposed to do, what are they going to see you for? Well, clearly, malpractice cost is uh, is a big one for physicians. So if, if there's things that we can do that will, one, reduce the rate that, that I'm sued, two, reduce the amount that I'm spending on my malpractice cost, uh, obviously that makes uh, a lot of sense very quickly. And that's the kind of thing that I like to try to get out there just because uh, so many times it just sounds like, oh, I'm just... That's just money I have to spend. I don't have I don't have the money to spend on that. One of the things we try to do, if I can't produce a good business case for something, then I'm probably not going to get involved with it. Because look, doctors are hit on enough. Okay, and, and as I said in the beginning, you, you can't do good until you've done well. So it's important that we protect doctors' revenue and make sure they can still make a profit. Frank Martin, a healthcare expert with the Medical Consultants Group. Frank, tell me who who needs you. You know who who needs to, from a practice perspective or a healthcare organization perspective, needs to link up with an outside expert who can evaluate what they're doing from electronic medical record processes. You name the things that that you would be able to say. Oh, we got to change this for compliance reasons. We got to change this for efficiency reasons. Whatever it may be, the problem. Talk about the the who needs you and uh, the 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 problems that you solve for those groups? At the end of the day, my job is to help the practice become a better business. Um, Independent practices, uh, I'm a huge believer in the value of independent practices. I think practices that are independent, um, we should do all we can to make sure that they stay independent. (laughs) It seems like they're going the other way right now. I, I, I think that trend is actually slowing and beginning to stop. I think there's, we've kind of reached saturation point. From a hospital owned perspective? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, If a practice um, needs to regard themselves as a business, my job at the end of the day is to help them develop a strategic plan 
put in uh, management information systems and, and in business intelligence systems that allows the practice to understand how well they're performing as a business and to look into the future. And given historical information, how can I project that into the future and turn it into cash flow projections that make sense based on incident rates and number of people in my practice? Um, if a you take a look historically on, on the population of patients that are the age between the ages of 30 and 40. You get 20 colds per 100 patients in the first quarter of the year, and you've got 500 patients. It's easy to do the math and say, I'll probably get this many patients. And then how much do I make on a cold? On average, I make X number of dollars. You can do the math real quickly and say for the top 20 most frequently occurring diagnoses, this is probably what I will collect in the first quarter. Okay, and you can use that as a cash flow projection. That's a wonderful thing to be able to take to the bank so you can make sure that you have a, a line of credit that will allow you to, to deal with variations in cash flow. Okay, so there's lots of things that you can do to have a strategic plan. Uh, how well penetrated are you in your market area? If your market area, I mean, in my mind, it, it can and should be defined by a list of zip codes, what is the share of that market? For patients in your demographic range, or patients that have your, uh, how do you how do you get at that? It's easy. There are lots of real estate companies who are more than happy to help doctors' offices figure out is your office in the right place, and the way to determine if your, is your if your office is in the right place is to get to the demographic breakdown of the patients. Most doctors tend to look at the success or failure of the current year based on how big or small is it relative to last year as opposed to how well am I doing defined by market share or defined by strategic plan. So when you talk about the demographics piece, are you talking about going to, say, like a CDC or a, a place like that, a, a source of data like that to, say, show me the health demographics for Cobb County or for zip code X, Y, and Z? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I wouldn't go to CDC, okay? There are... are um, companies that specialize in helping doctors' offices find the right location for their office. And what they take into account is the demographic breakdown of the zip codes around the office and the number of competitors within that list of zip codes. And they have real specific breakdowns. And, it's, and those demographic breakdowns are actually designed to help doctors understand What's the market look like? Not necessarily clinically the way CDC would, but from an age standpoint, from an income standpoint, from a number of kids standpoint, lots of demographic factors that you can consider. Now, as part of your, your work, are you advising on EMRs, where to go, what, what to choose based on the type of practice that you're interfacing with, or do you more just come in and if they've got something in place, kind of help them use it better. How, do, how does it relate to advising them around the electronic medical record? Um, EMRs are like Excel spreadsheets. Everybody has one. Most people don't use them to the full extent that they could. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said people regarded the EMRs as being essentially a way to take notes more efficiently. Right. I think the combination of the EMR and the practice management system needs to be regarded as an office operating system. And the office operating system can certainly help you understand how you could reduce um, the cost per encounter by assigning tasks to the lowest price person in the practice who is able to do the task. There are some tasks that only doctors can do. There are other tasks that $10 an hour or $12 an hour medical assistants can do. You want to make sure the right task is with the right person. 
And you're saying that some of the modern architecture EMRs give you some ability to do that. Sure. Um, they do that. They also give you the ability to record data more easily. They have things like exploding text, SOB, shortness of breath. So by typing three letters, you can get up to a 2,000-character write-up, and you greatly decrease the amount of time it takes you to enter the data. You can also make sure that you can build templates that for this diagnosis, these are the CPT codes that I usually use. We can call in a good coder and make sure, is that the best list of CPT codes? You can optimize your EM coding by making sure that you're following the rules of the algorithm for assigning EM codes. A lot of doctors defensively undercode. If you have a good EMR and you can document everything you've done, then you can choose the right EM code and not have to worry about defensively undercoding. So, how often do you interface with a physician group? large or smallish, uh, and you're leading them to self-discovery of where they're inefficient or where they have opportunities to improve, whatever they may be, versus someone calling you, because I would, I would presume, without, without knowing any better, I would presume that most providers who have issues that you can fix don't really realize that they have those issues yet. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? That they're, they're not calling you saying, oh, my gosh, my house is on fire. Come put it out. Um, I had a doctor call me the other day. Uh, he had a um, accounts receivable balance of over $500,000. Um, average age, probably um, in excess of 180 days. Okay? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was. Um, so when I met with him, I said, okay, I know that you think you have an accounts receivable problem. I'm going to tell you that you have a process problem. If the process was right, you never would have gotten yourself to this position. And if the only thing we do is collect your accounts receivable as much as we can and don't fix the process, you're going to be calling me again in six months and we're going through the same drill. Okay? So um, accounts receivable can be a trigger. Uh, the sense that you're – and this doctors get this sense, I'm working harder and harder and harder. I'm making less and less and less. Okay? Technology creates time. What you do with the time is kind of up to you. You can see more patients. You can go home earlier. You can spend more quality time with each patient. So by using technology appropriately, you can, in fact, create time in the practice, and you can use that in various different ways. How often, I'm curious, do you hear, yeah, I bought this awesome Cerner system back in 06. I really don't, I don't need to drop another five figures or six figures, whatever it may be or a license on a new, however they charge. I don't know much about the new EMR systems and how they're built out. But, I mean, how often do you find somebody that's on a legacy system, basically what I'm talking about, where the application, they come in. Back in the old days, they would come in, and they would have a team, and they would install it on all your devices, all your machines, all your laptops and computers and all of that. And if they had to do an update, well, they had to send the team in and go in and install it on all your machines. Now, you just access a portal <laughs> from whatever device is given uh, permissions to do so and all the all the bells and whistles and the actual hard, uh, the computing component of that lives elsewhere on the cloud in that mystery place that few people understand um, why should somebody move from one to the other meaning why should I go from my legacy system or the old system that's installed on my device right here my trusty old uh, Apple 64 um, to uh, a modern cloud-based application? Yeah, a group of 
answers here. Um, if you're lucky enough to live in the state of Georgia, Georgia has uh, passed a law that says training or retraining employees of your business on the use of operating software, not Microsoft Word or Excel or PowerPoint, but operating software, um, allows you to apply for and receive a tax credit of up to $1,250 per employee. It's not a tax deduction. That's a tax credit. So if you owed the state $10,000 in taxes and you utilized this tax credit and it totaled $6,000, your tax bill would go down to $4,000. Now, it's, in my mind, incumbent upon the EMR company to help you understand how you would get a return on the investment of going to the new version. Uh, in, to me, the really smart practices don't necessarily chalk up their EMR and their PM system to IT expense, they chalk it up to business continuity insurance. You have to make sure that your office operating system is, we rely more and more and more on computers, which makes sense to me, mm -hmm. but that's my opinion. Um, then you have to keep that system alive and going. So if you look at it as a business continuity thing where, okay, w what if I drive in the practice in the morning and meet the fire truck? <laughs> Not good, <laughs> yeah, right? right. But if, as you suggest, you're on a cloud-based system, you haven't lost any data at all. All you have to do is find a new office, put in a new server and a new way to connect, and you're good to go. That's right. And from what I understand, I, I myself had skepticism about, well, the, this information is out there. Where is it? But from what I understand, that when you have data, whether it's health data or financial data or data, uh, proprietary information, that it is far more secure in those types of environments than on your machine even uh, it, from a security perspective no question about that i mean if you look at just think about building level machine level security building level security office level security if your data is housed on a server someplace else it, it, those places are guarded you can't get in unless you show identification i mean it, they're very secure locations with double redundant backups and and not only physically, but digitally secure on a uber-high level, kind of NSA kind of level. Um, they're the people that the hackers are trying to compete with, basically, yes. to, to secure your information. So in the end, it's much more safe. And you probably have some measure of, of recourse if something is done to your data. If, you, if there is a breach you, and it's in that kind of environment, I'm sure you have some sort of, uh, I don't know if compensation is the right word, but uh, uh, remedy. Yes, to uh, to you know take care of that kind of situation. Now, when you're when you're interfacing with a practice, is there uh, a size, a typical size of organization that you tend to find yourself working with? Or are you able to help the solo practice all the way up to a multi-site, hundred physician group? Where where's your sweet spot as relates to providing the services you provide? It has much more to do with attitude than it does with size. Okay. Once the practice adopts the attitude that we need to take. Um, advantage of looking at our practice as a business and really understanding how to manage that business in the, in the uh, face of changing regulations and, and a changing healthcare environment. Once the practice takes that step, then I'm going to be able to provide a lot of advice. Until the practice takes that step, they're probably going to go, what do I need you for? Can you, can you tick off the top, I don't know, you name the number, three, four, five, mistakes you typically see or places where we usually have 
these are the these are the top three things that I want to see straight away when I get in and, and uh, meet with a new client. I'm going to look at these first because that's one where some of the biggest risk comes from or from the greatest gain as it relates to better efficiency, whatever it may be. What are the three missteps or weaknesses that you tend to find to be able to fix to the greatest uh, level of turnaround in terms of outcome? The first place I'm going to look is billing. Your practice is set up to CX number of patients a day, and you're comfortable with that. If I can figure out a way to make you more money on that number of patients being seen per day, then that's a win for all of us. And from my standpoint, if I can make you more money, we've instantly become friends, right? <laughs> right. And I can then say, well, since you're making this extra money, why don't we use that now on helping you see more patients? If you're making more money per patient, now we can see more patients. Okay. Right? Then I'm going to go to compliance, ICD-10 and HIPAA. And then at the end of the day, what I'm going to go to is now we're going to talk about strategic plans and business intelligence. But I'm a big believer in making sure that my interventions or my working with the practice is self-funding to the best of my ability to do so. So I'm going to start by creating more money and then walking you through how you may be able to spend some more of that to even increase it more. So as it relates to the compliance side of things, I would assume that that's an avoidance of risk or cost uh, from fines or, or loss due to like legal action or whatever it may be. Um, that's just a... If I'm going to spend money, I might as well reduce the amount of exposure that I have. Absolutely. I mean, I'm from the IRS and I'm here to help. <laughs> no. Okay. So you <laughs> you want to make sure that you've got your bases covered there. Okay. And I'm sure that uh, it's not all un uncommon that, that we don't have our bases covered. The most important base to cover with HIPAA is making sure that you have a HIPAA-compliant risk assessment. That is essentially a physical exam for the practice in HIPAA. Just as a doctor can't tell the patient what to do to make them better until he does a baseline physical, mm -hmm. it's the same with a uh, HIPAA-compliant risk assessment. It's a way to assess the risk that the practice could experience a breach. And when you move on to you know, business plans and intelligence, are there things from the perspective of the practice itself that they can do to learn more about the lay of the land as it relates to their practice, uh, what the competition is doing, or is that stuff that you end up having to outsource through various outside entities? You can always, tons of information available online. Okay, You can always look at your competitors and see what patients are saying about them. You can always look at your competitors' websites and see what they're pushing and what they're not pushing. Okay, I mean... Uh, um, in my world, if I were trying to differentiate myself as a consultant by saying, you know, I'm kind of a smart guy, that's not a differentiator. I mean, who, what consultant's going to say, you should work I'm not with, very smart. Yeah, I'm not really all that bright. So. <laughs> but a lot of practices don't necessarily show patients what differentiates them from other practices. The specifics of how the doctor handles patients, case studies, patient examples, patient testimonials, those are all great things to have on the website. And if your competitors aren't taking advantage of that, you can. I see. Um, do you have some other important points that we really need to drive home for? Because uh, today's really been heavily aimed at our practice and healthcare provider side. But do you have any more words of wisdom that you really want to make sure that, uh, that they leave today's show with before we jump off the air? 
if you are an independent practice and you don't have a strategic plan and, and you're not thinking about the possibility of growing or acquiring other practices, you probably should be, okay? Um, it, there's going to be lots of movement within the medical market. And typically, there's people that buy other practices and people that sell to other practices. And it's probably best that you at least start thinking about that. In the world of business, a guy came to me at one point in time and said, if you don't ask yourself the question every year, what would I do if somebody handed me a box of money? If you don't have a good answer to that question, you're not thinking about it enough. And from a doctor's standpoint, what would I do if I wanted to expand? Because I really think we're in an environment where to be is to grow. And if you're not thinking about growth, you're probably going to shrink. Okay. Anything else? Um, certainly, if you're not collecting 90% um, of your insurance dollars within 60 days, if you don't get at least 90% of your claims accepted by the insurance company on the first pass, we need to talk. Okay. If you don't have a strategy for how to deal with patient balances, we need to talk. Susie's my neighbor. She's been doing my billing for years and years. Why should I make a change? Uh, what's the cost of billing? MGMA says that the cost of billing on average is 14.5%. So if I collect $100,000 a month, it's costing me $14,500 to do that. You can outsource billing for less than 6%. So using less than 6% as a guideline, then all you have to do is total up the total amount of money you spend for billing and then divide that into the amount of money that you collect per month, and you're going to get a cost of billing. Uh, but my, my specialty is very unique, and outside coders probably wouldn't understand my practice. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, what's the incentive? Again, if your cost of billing is 14.5%, you can get it for less than five, that's $7,000 a month if you're collecting $100,000 a month. Okay, for $7,000 a month, we can learn. <laughs> okay? So it just, but it depends on the incentive. If, the, if your cost of billing is 8%, and the best you could do is go to six, I would agree. Susie's the woman. Well, I know that you're on LinkedIn, Frank, Frank Martin, of the Medical Consultants Group. But tell folks where else that they can link up with you so that uh, if one of our uh, partners in the community has been listening today and they're like, wow, this, this is something I need to think about, how can they get in touch with you? You can find out a lot about me on uh, www.medicalconsultantsgroup.com. Um, you can certainly email me, frank.martin at medicalconsultantsgroup.com, phone number 404-272-4883. So all of the above. Well, I want to tell you thanks so much for taking some time because clearly uh, in the changing landscape where, as we talked about early on in the show today, patients face it. They have more out-of-pocket expense now than they had before. Um, like it or not, that's a reality. One of the reasons why that is is so we, we, we think twice about spending money. Um, you've talked about the fact that there's some strat strategies and some things that we can do to kind of interface with those patients and help them through that. Um, but beyond that, you also talked about some key points that will make our office operate more efficiently, keep us in line with the, the new regulatory changes that are not only here but growing. 
um, and uh, given some ideas on what we need to be thinking about strategically as a practice. So uh, I'm very happy to be able to introduce folks to you if they didn't have a chance to hear you first time you came on the show months ago. So uh, uh, Frank Martin, medical consultant that's uh, helping practices around the Atlanta metro community. If you have questions uh, as it relates to your practice, Send us a tweet online. Uh, we're on Twitter and Facebook at uh, Top Docs on BRX. That's T-O-P-S-D-O-C-S on BRX. That's both Facebook and Twitter. And if you come up with a question, uh, we're more than happy to pass it along to our guests after they've been on the show, and we'll try to get back to you with an answer uh, that will uh, help you out and uh, get your, your, your problem solved. So make sure you get to know Frank. Link up with him on LinkedIn. I'm sure he'll uh, be happy to uh, take your request to connect there. Um, and uh, Frank? Good to see you again in the studio. CW, a pleasure as always. Look forward to uh, having you back. Maybe sometime we can have you come back with uh, a practice that can kind of act as a case study. We can talk about some of the things that they're working on, um, get to know them a little bit, and, and see kind of how linking up with you and engaging in your expertise help their practice move forward and, and uh, do so more efficiently, more profitably. So anyway, we look forward to uh, making that happen down the road. Uh, out there in the world listening, thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. We appreciate the fact that so many people have been downloading our show. We're over 4,500 downloads on the on the show now. Uh, I'm very excited to see that. So uh, keep coming back. And uh, if you have questions about uh, or, or, or recommendations about topics you'd like for us to talk about here on Top Docs Radio, please let us know. We'd be more than happy to see if we can't put together a show that will uh, get you some great information that you're looking for. So that being said... We'll see you same time, same place next week.